all struggles are essentially power struggles. Who will rule? Who will lead? Who will define, refine, confine, design? Who will dominate? All struggles are essentially power struggles. And most are no more intellectual than two rams knocking their heads together as they embrace the void. The universe is a cruel, uncaring void. The key to being happy isn't to search for meaning, it's to just keep yourself busy with unimportant nonsense, and eventually, you'll be dead. Stop fighting it. You're gonna be okay. Face the void. Call it a one-way vacation to the void. Warning. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 165 of Embrace the Void, where you know better than I do how things are going right now. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we are talking violent revolution, the wide range of racial theories, and black male studies in particular. So, let's try to keep breathing. Life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... something. My guest this week is Professor T.J. Curry, Chair of Africana Philosophy and Black Male Studies at Edinburgh uh, University. Dr. Curry, would you like to say hi to the void? <laughs> Hello, how's everyone doing? Great, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate you taking the time. You uh, reached out to be a, a helpful resource on some, a question that I had on Twitter, and um, I always like when conversations arise in that way. Excellent, excellent, yeah. I find Twitter's uh, sort of negative, so I'm always happy to entertain you know earnest questions. Yeah, I understand that feeling, and it is, there is a lot of negative energy on Twitter. At the same time, I've met so many really interesting people and gotten to have great conversations through that that it's hard for me to, to not include that in my calculations. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. So before we dive into uh, discussing your work in things like black male studies, I'm curious, do you want to let folks know a little bit about your background and sort of where you fall or where you would present yourself on the great political compass of life? <laughs> oh, you're going to have to give me some boundaries. I don't know if I would say anything that people recognize. I like to leave it unbounded and see how people choose to self-identify. Okay, so just describe my my theories or what are what my political affiliations? What do you want here? Yeah, where do you come from politically? Where do you come from philosophically? Do you uh, are you uh, is your primarily a philosophically trained background or? Yeah, I, th I would say primarily. Um, you know, I I got into philosophy from debate, so I I started off actually reading critical legal studies and critical race theory as kind of my entrance way into digging into some of these larger questions you know so i'm from late charles louisiana i'm a first generation student so i see a very intimate relationship between uh, racism and poverty uh the way that people talk about class in the academy is not really something i recognize because it was so closely intertwined with segregation and racism especially in the southern economies uh, i became interested in gender uh, because growing up in the South, you very rarely see black men that uh, were role models are able to obtain education in the way that I think many people are used to in, in more northern states. 
So politically, I, I don't really have an identifier because uh, I think a lot of people just moralize or rationalize their own biases as politics. Uh, mm-hmm. So I much more like things that approximate towards the truth. And I think that we should try to create uh, systems of thought that not only accurately describe the world we live in, uh, but try to benefit as many people as possible. That's totally fair. I accept that as a, a very sophisticated version of I don't prefer labels, which I understand. <laughs> I, and we can we can work our way through some of your positions here. And I think that'll that'll so that can be a useful way to understand where you're coming from. Fair um, enough. Now, I was looking back through and listening back through a little bit of your sort of bio and experiences. And I, I just, you know, I find these kinds of context valuable. I imagine as someone who also is, you know, like versed in these critical theories where a lot of people talk in terms of stories. I think it is important mm-hmm. whether whether or not we label them to at least give some some of these kinds of backgrounds. And I got the impression that you have had the experience of being some version of canceled by both folks who would, I think we would rec- correctly identify as being on the left, and then folks mm-hmm. who would have, we would correctly identify as being on the far right. Um, and I'm curious if you want to maybe say a little bit about those experiences and how you would compare and contrast them, and maybe how they've shaped your perspective a little bit. Sure. Um, I'm always a little ambiguous about what it means to be canceled. Mm-hmm. You know, white supremacists don't like me. <laughs> I take that as a given. Because, you know, I'm very critical of systemic racism. I think I differ from most philosophers in that a large uh, chunk of my work is actually working with victims in the real world, uh, as well as digging into social scientific research. So I don't see racism as something that you can compromise or talk through. I think that it has to be dealt with at the level of policy uh, and the level of uh, mass social movements if those are to come about. Uh, So people on the right don't like my very adamant attacks, not only against white men, but white women for the roles that they play in demonizing black people. So, you know, back in, what was it, 2017, a white supremacist uh, by the name of Rod Dreher dug up a piece that I did, God, five, six years earlier, so 2011, 2012 on Django Unchained, uh, Mm -hmm. said that I was arguing for the mass genocide of white people when I was really talking about black people's uh, right to self-defense and the acts of revolutionary violence that black people had conducted or performed in the past uh, to gain liberation and freedom. Uh, and that became a whole blow up in a place like Texas A&M that's overwhelmingly conservative and very hostile to black and brown professors uh, on the campus. Uh, on the other hand, on the left, I guess by the left, you mean like feminists, right? That, yes, that was the group that it seemed like were yeah. <laughs> you were in some conflict with at various points. Well, I don't, you know, you know, it's always interesting because I think we start from the position that feminists are somehow neutral political bodies that just want equality, and the research I do shows that on both sides, be it white or black, there are insidious theories concerning the inferiority of various groups, uh, usually poor, usually male, and the presumed danger that they pose not only to society, but to women uh, specifically. So if you look back through any of the research that I've published on 19th century ethnology, I'm uncovering those nasty tidbits and letters that you find in the archives where white feminists who were involved with suffrage uh, were actively seeking to eliminate, if not exterminate, men of the darker races. Uh, And Mm -hmm. people are uncomfortable with that. And the fact is, is that when you're talking about white feminism, it wasn't an isolated historical incident. They did this uh, in the early 1900s 
We have documents from the 1920s about the WKKK. I actually uh, show some of these to my class about the women's Ku, uh, Ku Klux Klan of, uh, organizations, their constitutions, their pictures with children, um, their parades and marches in Waco, Texas. Uh, the 1940s and 50s, you have white women who are actively campaigning against desegregation that want to keep segregation up in the 1960s 70s and 80s you have white feminists people that we recognize uh making insidious claims about the nature of black men as fundamentally subcultural meaning that poor black men develop within a culture of violence and rape uh and that this is the way that we should understand gender so that's when masculinity started becoming uh intertwined with the idea of rape and violence uh, mm -hmm. So that kind of thought extends into the 1980s and 1990s in black feminism. Uh, you see the same authors quoted. You see the same kinds of arguments cited. So I think that doing that kind of research, you know, it's the same thing that happens to anybody that that brings about a kind of a new truth against the masses of people. Right. You know, those people are unpopular and those people are called names. Uh, but in terms of the research, uh, nobody's mm -hmm. dared to refute it because <laughs> you can't really refute what's put in print, you know, it's not that kind of argument. So, yeah, I get mm -hmm. I mean, if that's what you mean, then uh, certainly I've had I've had run ins on both sides of the uh, political spectrum. Yeah, I think that's just interesting. And I want to I, I want to put a pin in the, the feminist side for a second, because I think we'll we'll get into that those arguments more when we talk about your black male studies stuff. Mm -hmm. And I just want to sort of talk about the, the white nationalist thing um, sure. for a second, because as I understand that you were sort of effectively pushed out of the country or strongly encouraged to leave the country as a result of <laughs> uh, this treatment. And, and one thing that I immediately noticed about this, I online often get in conversations about canceled, as, as you recognize it is a fairly vague mm -hmm. concept. Um, and in these conversations, there's a common technique that gets brought up at various points where people will point to a laundry list of professors who have experienced some si some sort of cancellation for their you know their their extreme views or whatever saying something racist or some any number of things that people have gotten you know yes. uh, chastised for right never in any of those conversations has your name ever come up i had no idea yeah. that you had had this experience and i think that's important because i think it points to the way that certain things that seem to me as much to qualify as canceling as anything don't mm -hmm. get included on those lists because of the social and racial contours of that particular example has that been your experience at the at the middle of one of these um store you know events well to, to be honest with you you know I, I i really don't know where the whole like i had to flee the country story comes from right okay. because allegedly i was canceled in 2017 i didn't leave until 2019 you know okay. So, so I wasn't, nobody threatened me. I didn't like, you know, I think it was pretty public. Like after, you know, Trump's election in 2016, places like Texas A&M became horrible for everyone. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. I wasn't the only person that was attacked. I think that because I was, you know, kind of so visible that that's what really kind of stuck out to a lot of people. But I stayed at Texas A&M for, for another two years. I was a full professor. You know, there's really nothing they could do to me. Um, mm -hmm. You know, did I like the environment? Absolutely not. Uh, and that's what made me start looking elsewhere. Uh, I was still getting uh, on-campus interviews like two years after that, like three or four a year at some pretty major, you know, institutions for directorships and chairships, et cetera. Uh, so 
Yeah, that's why when people say canceled, I'm I'm always kind of like, mm, you know, I don't know exactly what that means. Like, if I was blacklisted and got no on campuses, then I would think I was canceled, right? Okay. Like the year I, that I, I left, I actually yeah. had nine on campus interviews. I just decided that Edinburgh was probably the best choice of those that I had, so I accepted uh -huh. it first. Um, so if the, uh -huh. I hope that adds a little bit of context to it. I don't I don't know if that fits within the same narrative. But what I do know mm -hmm. and understand very seriously is I guess how politicized the academic game is. You know, mm -hmm. uh, I found out that once you're attacked, there are some people who don't want to talk to you. I found out that after you say something or you discover some speeches that, that white feminists have made or certain relationships that black feminists had to these ideologies, certain people don't want to speak to you. And I guess that's kind of part of the course, but mm -hmm. in terms of the effect that it's had on me career-wise, I'm, I'm still kind of up in the air about, you know what I mean? Because it's like, mm -hmm. if I was canceled, I was canceled into a, a distinguished chair at Edinburgh. I don't know if that fits the narrative exactly. No, that's certainly true, and I think it's a really good <laughs> clarification. And I yeah. think, yeah, there is, there is a problem with these kinds of tot totalizing narratives about cancellation where those kinds of details often get obscured, I think, on both sides in various cases. So I think that's yeah. that's valuable to clarify. Um, the other thing I, I noticed in the, the content of what you were not canceled for, but uh, what people were mad at you about was, it, it sounds like you're talking about the use of violence in decolonization yeah. or revolution mm -hmm. or something like that. And I've been, I've been reading um, Fanon recently for one of my classes and I just read his chapter on violence and it really yes. made me think a lot about how you know the discourse around acceptable reactions to injustice especially in the sort of modern liberal landscape really completely excludes that those sort of appeals to justified violence in mm. in colonial settings right we, we are cool with the idea of justified violence against Hitler in Europe but like right when you talk about, you know, uh, people of color engaging in revolutionary violence, I think there's a lot more sort of anxiety, not just from white supremacists, but from, you know, well-meaning white liberals as well. Um, oh, I'm curious if you came across that. Oh, absolutely. I did. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I did. Um, you know, I think that if anyone listens to the actual podcast that, that Dreher put up, it's, it's trying to, it's attempting to answer this very set, the same question, right? That mm -hmm. when we looked at Django, we saw a spectacle of black violence and we thought it was funny, right? It's it's an imaginary aspect of, you know, what black people could do if they truly believed in liberation or freedom. And I tried to contextualize that historically and say, look, you know, you have all kinds of revolts and rebellions. You have some in Jamaica, you have some in the South, you have Haiti, et cetera. As like every conversation about black freedom in the 19th century is practically a conversation uh, about violence against whites. Uh, mm -hmm. precisely because of of the issue of enslavement. So I, I find it strange when we have such a, a, a narrow and limited uh, intellectual history of black struggles for, for liberation that we completely exclude that. And I think that's why we get this kind of reaction for, from white liberals uh, and even, you know, the, the, the right, because people have defined black liberation as co a constant appeal to white people's emotion and better selves. It, mm -hmm. it presupposes that the only agency that black people have is in on, on, being on bended knee asking for something. And that's just not how history worked out. So when I discuss, mm -hmm. you know, political violence or I discuss, you know, Fanon or this week I, I was actually teaching my class, uh, Huey P. Newton, uh, is done mm -hmm. so within the context and, and confines of a black intellectual tradition where this is kind of part of the course. 
uh, is mm-hmm. not exceptional. Violence against black people is not exceptional. Uh, it happens every day, as we see, you know, from all the protests in the United States. But somehow the idea that black people could respond against white people and protect themselves or, you know, prefer revolution, that somehow is only reserved for the great thinkers like Marx. And and there's an implicit, you know, epistemic mm-hmm. racism there that suggests the only way that we can actually know the world justifies such, you know, such means is if a white person tells us so, as if black people don't have the kind of authorship that allows them to say, well, enough is enough. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I'm curious what your takeaways are for that and for claims from folks like Fanon that like decolonization cannot be nonviolent. Uh, for our current situation and the, the sort of growing tension and, and social conflict. You know, I just saw today that like Walmart is pulling guns off the shelves because they're afraid of, um, you know, looting and people stealing guns for mm-hmm. violent activities. Um, so, yeah, I've been curious. Do you like do you feel that violent decolonization is something that is still in our present and future? And how do you see that? possibly playing out in a functional kind of way if at all well listen you know civilizations live and they die you mm-hmm. know and, and, I've, and i've said I, I think i've been as kind of honest as possible the few last few years about my view on this uh i think that because we live in america we again think that violence is the exception to civil society uh and that means that we give consent to violence largely to the state are to the auspices of the states or agents of the states like the police, and we pretend that we're living peaceful lives. And the minute that that gets fractured a little bit, there's a small crack in the in the civil order of the society, then we panic because we think society's unraveling. Uh, the reality of the situation is that race is an explosive social situation in the United States and throughout Europe. And part mm-hmm. of that explosive tenor of the situation, of, of this context, uh, is that at any point something can trigger mass protests, mass resistance, mass revolts, or incredible state repression, right? Mm-hmm. So I do think that violent decolonization is something that's constantly in the air. However, I think the repression that academics in the United States feel from being able to speak to this issue means that they have to become um, respectable observers, shall I say, of the corpse of black and brown men who pile up uh, in the name of trying to come to a racial understanding with whites in the po- at the top of the power structure. And mm-hmm. I think that in the last year or so, we've seen exactly this process happen where the Democratic National Convention has been willing to talk to, say, the mothers of the black men shot and killed and national geographic has been willing to display the mothers holding the bodies of black men but they have not been willing to entertain any of the concerns or issues of safety of black men themselves uh Mm -hmm. this suggests to me that there's a a woefully inadequate understanding of how violence and murder actually work in america and what Mm -hmm. it's meant to actually do so if this is the program i think that you can see in the future the, the the great possibility that violence, if not violent revolt, uh, is going to happen around some of these issues, be it economic or racial. You you mentioned the role of the intellectual, and that was one of the most confronting parts of that Fanon chapter for me was where he mm-hmm. talks about how the intellectual makes the mistake of thinking that their role is bringing about a, a functional and just reconciliation between mm-hmm. the colonizer and the colonized. And they fail to understand that the goal of the, like the, the, the true goal and justified goal of the colonized is to kill and replace the colonizers. And if they're Absolutely. not looking for coexistence, um, 
yeah, I think yes, that's... he says the uh, the colonial world must not uh, cannot be met in negotiation. It has to be buried and destroyed. And he even like points to you know when people start to get restless, folks like bring out this um, gospel litany about the the benefits of modern liberalism that have improved yes. everyone's lives and such. And yeah, those like, universal values, right? Yeah, right. And the the, the colonized are like reaching for their machetes, listening to the lectures, and I just exactly. like I'm visualizing Twitter as I'm reading that, and it's. Yeah, it's it feels very current, which is unnerving. At no, the it does, it does. Mm-hmm. And and again, what I what I you know what I constantly say is that we're not very comfortable thinking about the kinds of values that become universal values, right? Mm-hmm. Like when you know, and this this kind of you know speaks to the issue of gender as well. But you know, we have no problem claiming that you know feminism is revolutionary. Queer theories, revolutionary, trans activism is revolutionary, the DM the uh Democratic National Party and their convention platforms is the revolution. Like all these things become revolutionary and they're not overturning anything. Mm-hmm. Right? People people yeah. are still dying. Poor people are still dying, black men are still dying, brown men are still dying, indigenous men are still, you know, like the people who are at the bottom in terms of death and dying and in the carceral system, which mm-hmm. we admit take people out of society are not conversation pieces. And if they're spoken about, they're not certainly spoken as, they're not their own representatives. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I think that Fanon's analysis is correct because we've accepted reformism as the best example of trying to fundamentally change society uh, and is, is offered no results for the people who are at the bottom of those of those positions. Yeah, and I think that's totally true. I, okay, I'm going to downshift here a little bit. I didn't mean to like open our conversation directly into revolutionary violence. I figured we'd, <laughs> we'd build to that over the hour and do a little bit of like formal philosophy first. So I apologize that we spiraled quickly no, in that direction. But no, I think that was really interesting. I wanted to back up though because the reason that we cross paths on Twitter is you offered to help me as someone who's still, you know, who's coming from an analytic philosophy background and who's exploring this critical theory world landscape um, and trying to map out the conceptual landscape a little more clearly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I was trying to dis- disambigu- you know, I was trying to distinguish between, in that case, uh, critical race theory and, and black Marxism. Um, but maybe you can just help a little bit. How do you see the map of theories like critical theory, critical race theory, black Marxism, black Marxism, uh, post-colonialism and any other of the, the isms that you think are really important to to highlight on this map? Wow. Well, I mean, if you're going with old school critical theory, I guess you're talking about Horkheimer and all these other people. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, so that'd be the intersection of Marxism and psychoanalysis to talk about how people see certain desires and stuff playing out in in society. You know, uh, my favorite critical theory is I think it's Althusser. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like his stuff on ideology. Um, mm-hmm. But that's quite distinct from the projects that you're getting coming out of the black intellectual tradition, like critical race theory, because critical race theory is roughly being introduced and thought about by Bell in 1977, around the same t- time that critical legal studies is. So mm-hmm. Bell writes this essay, I want to say is in the Notre Dame lawyer in 1977, 1978, that's talking about 
uh, how we understand class dynamics in negotiations for civil rights. So he's kind mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. introducing what will never become kind of his third party analysis and racial covenants. Uh, and basically he's trying to say is like, look, you know, we try to do racial remediation uh, and we think these are based on some fundamental truth in the law when really racial progress is just the outcome of certain class dynamics between rich white people uh, and middle class white people and poor white people. Right. It's their constant mm -hmm. negotiation. So we know he, of course, later developed this into the idea of interest convergence uh, which right. basically says that black people gain benefits racially or make racial advancement when it benefits one, one or more parties of white people in doing so uh, because of that that's why he says something like well basically black civil rights are always contingent right they're never permanent mm -hmm. and i think mm -hmm. if anything trump has shown in 2016 after the two-term election of barack obama is that that's definitely true at any moment affirmative mm -hmm. action the kind of goodwill um, you know, efforts of institutions, even, you know, institutions of higher ed, like universities that are thought to be these great liberal spaces, uh, are, are willing to kind of pull back diversity efforts to fit the language of the person that's in the executive seat at the time. Uh, so critical race theory, at least in its realist formation, when, mm -hmm. when I say realist, these are people like Bell, Delgado, Nunn, uh, Linda Green, et cetera, who are looking at specific material, economic, political, legal uh, policies and effects of of you know institutions on black people uh, those group of people are going to be fundamentally different from what we think of in critical theory and even black marxism even though they're sympathetic mm -hmm. to it so sure. when you think about cedric robinson's book that was published in the 80s black marxism is coming up with an analysis of how racial capitalism or the combination of capitalism and race functions he starts off with an analysis of feudal society and moves all the way through about the way that certain class dynamics are bent are adjusted to account for uh racial animus and and institutional racism uh on all segments be it historical etc so that differs largely because even though you're talking about capitalism and the way that capital operates to exploit black people and function to enrich certain people at the expense of others, it doesn't have the same kind of analytical starting point that Bell did. So Bell's thinking about economics through uh, internal colonization theory and what that is. So he's reading people like Robert Allen uh, in Black Awakening in Capitalist America. He's trying to say, look, you know, it's not only that you have to deal with a class dynamic. But when you're dealing with black people who are basically a colony in the United States, you're dealing with a permanent situation of labor exploitation because the whole country is going to utilize them as kind of a depository group of negativity and alienation. Uh, but there's also going to be black bourgeois people who are going to be managers of that kind of system. So Bell mm -hmm. was very well aware that we're not just dealing with capital exploitations or class and everything between whites and blacks, we're also dealing with a petite bourgeoisie of black people that are running and in charge of making sure that other poor black people stay in a certain kind of positionality. Uh, it takes a more limited view of capitalism because it thinks it's that capitalism functions to maintain the colonies. So this is very mu is much closer to like moral systems theory, you know, the kind mm -hmm. of analysis that you're getting out of somebody like Oliver Cox, uh, except that it's all within the United States geography. Now, the idealist strand of critical race theory, I think, would be much more amenable to some of the arguments that are happening uh, in continental philosophy and critical theory, because they're interested in like discourse, psychoanalysis, uh, th this kind of reemergence of, of racial capitalism and how it actually mm -hmm. affects maybe some neoliberal 
uh, decision making. So I think they that they would be more amenable to kind of a concept of like, you know, black homo economicus, you know, I think that they're, they're, they're much more interested in how some of these decisions are going to be carried out at individual levels to prefer some categories over others to align themselves with certain white supremacist interests against some coalitional politics and intersectionality. But the mm-hmm. problem with idealism is because it's so uh, discursive uh, that is interested in you know psychoanalysis etc it often misses concrete policies right so even when you're talking about things like intersectionality and you're dealing with it in terms of conceptual lens you say oh well you know black women or black queer women or black trans women you know are triple quadruple oppressed etc it doesn't pay attention to the empirical reality so it says that based on certain vulnerabilities, we can abstract away and think of this group as being the most that's on the bottom and the most in need of liberation. But again, you know, part of the pushback that I have on this is that the materialism of critical race theory suggests to us that we have to look at actual policies, actual institution, actual you know practices that are right in front of us. Uh, and it doesn't work out the same way when you're looking at the real world versus abstractions from the world. Okay, so that that's very helpful and obviously a lot of information. Let me see if I can. So one thing that that, is, that seems valuable to me is that these different theories can be sort of put relational to each other in terms of how much emphasis they put on, you know, the effects of the material, you know, capital or the, like the, the physical systems that people are in, their real lived uh, situations versus the cultural, social, superstructure kinds of stuff. You know, like how right, much right. is class influencing versus race, for example, that there there are some folks who feel like it's strongly towards one polarity versus the other. And like these theories, or even like within these theories, there are different theorists who are putting slightly different emphasis on how they are explaining the relationship between those different systems that are coming together to, to produce people's experiences and and you mentioned there at the end intersectionality which is a, mm-hmm. a, one theory that i want to talk to you about in particular um and listening to some of your critiques about intersectionality the impression i, I sort of got and this isn't to invalidate your critique but the, the impression mm-hmm. i got was that it's not so much a critique that intersectionality in theory is a false idea as that its application has often been not ideal or detrimental in the form of for example as you put just pointed out um, focusing too much on intersectionality with regard to uh, you know idealized group uh, ideas versus you know the intersecting of people's actual class experiences with various group identities or something like that do you would you say that there are better ways to do intersectionality and that like some of them are valuable in the sense that when they do take into account all of the things that you are including while also using this sort of core analysis of um, the way that these things come together. Because, I mean, like, my understanding of intersectionality, like, like the good, like, the better version of it that is, is supposed to be the alternative to the oppression Olympics kind of concern that you were raising is that it's supposed to be a highly particularist account that looks mm-hmm. at the way that within individuals, right, these different categories can come together and produce these different kinds of outcomes and ideally it wouldn't lead to monolithic narratives about how every black woman is having the same oppressed experience while still having some general useful applications in terms of saying this might be a common thing that a variety of folks in these groups could be experiencing does that am i am i totally off base on that well, well, I, th- I think this is one of the complications, right? Like one of the arguments that I make against intersectionality is that it's incredibly uh, ad hoc, right? So, mm-hmm. 
you know, and I, and I think the, the beginning of the conversation was a great example. So much of the work that I do with intersectionality is really tracing out the core assumptions that are laid out by people like Patricia Hill Collins and Kimberly Crenshaw in developing the concept, right? Mm -hmm. So Kimberly Crenshaw, for instance, writes this article saying that, look, you know, I basically came up with intersectionality by com combining critical race theory with uh, Catherine McKinnon's uh, dominance theory. OK, mm -hmm. so she's like, look, you know, critical race theories about racial subordination. Uh, it takes a view about black, white class antagonism or racial antagonism, just like dominance theory takes uh, a view of men versus women as a class antagonist. Right. Says, all right, let's put these things together. Uh, when you do that, she says, look, you know, I think that while McKinnon uh, certainly does have a somewhat strong essentialist view, I don't think it's exclusive. What does she mean by that? She thinks that McKinnon's view about women being uh, victims are subject to rape and sexual violence is something that every woman, right, always endures, that that's part of the position of being a woman. And Crenshaw buys into that. Well, you would say, well, you know, that seems intuitive. Well, what's the problem with that? Well, the problem with that is what do you do with that essential category of analysis, meaning gender, when you have to talk about male victims of rape? Right. Mm -hmm. What happens when, like in Kimberly Crenshaw's article, Mapping the Margins, you have to talk about male victims of domestic abuse. See, those things don't work out. And then mm -hmm. that's when people usually say, oh, well, that's about application. I say, well, fine, let's talk about a more ideal or, or apt notion of intersectionality. Can we mm -hmm. talk about an idea or a world where black men don't have patriarchal power? Well, no, black men always have patriarchal power. But I thought that we were talking about particulars, right? So if I talk about black men through a specific history where they've been victims of rape, sodomy, castration, domestic abuse, why is this patriarchal? Well, it is because they're male. I was like, ah, so there's, so there's a moment where intersectionality doesn't apply, which is when I need to understand maleness as a category in itself, right? It's an analytic category. So, you know, mm -hmm. this is the kind of thing that I have about the way that we play these games, right? When we talk about theories concerning other groups of people, the first thing we do is we say, well, look, here's a theory. Here's a definition of theory. Here's what it does. When we talk about intersectionality, we say, well, look, intersectionality has a definitional crisis. We don't know exactly what it is, but we know it when we see it. So it means that, well, something in the world could happen. Intersectionality doesn't predict it, but the, the individual scholar that, that, that's akin to intersectional thought can grab that moment after it's happened and say, this belongs to our analysis. So mm -hmm. there's no predictability with the theory. It is whatever people say it is or agree that it is. Uh, and this is highly problematic in terms of how we understand the way that the world actually comes together. Uh, the definition you gave of intersectionality actually stands in contrast, right, to mm -hmm. some of the most recent publications of intersectionality coming out of Harvard Law Review and coming out of, you know, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw and Devin Carbato and, and Cheryl Harris's work, because they want to say that everyone else has been wrong, that that we should not read Kimberly Crenshaw as making this kind of abstract argument about vulnerability, but really she's been talking about a system that's quite compatible with essentialism. Right. So they want to disown everybody else's work. And this was part of their hmm. uh, the article, I think, it was published last year. Yeah. 2019 at the 30th anniversary uh, of the theory. So part of my issue is, look, you can you can say or do whatever you want with intersectionality. I'm not really that interested in it. What I am interested in is whenever someone says, well, look, let's try to predict why black men, for instance, or why poor black men, for instance, constantly see themselves as victims of extraordinary levels of violence. 
what do we use to talk about that? I personally find social dominance theory to be a better theory. Now, people mm -hmm. say, well, that's intersectionality. Well, social dominance theory is certainly intersectional in the sense that it's interested in the interaction of two variables, namely race and, and sex or gender, right? Blackness and maleness or blackness and, and class or, you know, all sorts of different hierarchies. But it says the exact opposite. It predicts the exact opposite of what 30 years of intersectionality theory has done. And that's what I mean. It seems as if there's no outside of intersectionality. Even when you disprove a prediction or a claim of intersectionality, even that refutation itself is intersectionality. <laughs> so I don't see it as being a, a extremely productive conversation. I think that's. I understand what you're saying. I, I, I guess that was useful what you said there, especially for me at the end about like black male studies is intersectional, but not necessarily like capital I intersectionality theory. Yeah. If by that we mean a body of work that has applied intersectional theory in a consistent way over a certain period of time. So I think maybe that that's a useful distinction to me because my, my sort of next question was, it seems to me that what you are doing when you are doing black male studies, and again, not a critique, uh, you know, a yeah, good thing sure. is that you're doing something that is intersectional. You're talking about, you know, how being both black and male has certain impacts in a way that is generalizable to some extent, not essentializing, mm -hmm. but you are making broad predictions about the way that men in general have been expected to act in certain situations and the way that men in general will face consequences, black men in general will face consequences if they do not act according to those specific norms. Um, and I guess... There's, you know, for me, there isn't a lot of I'm not interested in the, the the war of whether you're using capital I or small I intersectionality. It just seems to me that like as a philosopher coming into this world, that that sort of ability to complicate stories um, that, of people's lives and people's experiences by bringing in these different factors seems like a useful insight but i can also understand that there's there could be a history of that insight not being applied consistently across a range of groups right well let me ask you this so mm -hmm. give, given what you just said there does the does the bad stuff count as intersectionality too so like does subculture like poorly done intersect sorry i'm not sure what you mean which bad thing so so I'll, let me give you an example mm -hmm. so in the 1970s uh, a guy named lynn a curtis came up with a theory uh, called contra-culture contra violence theory. And he said, look, mm -hmm. when you look at the race, class, and gender of black men uh, in black communities who are urban and underserved, uh, it produces a predatory nature. So we can actually predict that the mm -hmm. culture of black men from poor uh, urban neighborhoods uh, are going to be predatory, uh, highly violent, and antisocial, and based in rape, uh, mm -hmm. in, in rape ideology. So is that intersectional? So I think it could certainly be an intersectional analysis and it probably, and like, I don't want intersectional to be like a success term where only good versions of it are counting as intersectional. I think that you can, you could certainly have analyses done in an intersectional method that are bad in that particular case. Right. I would say it's bad because it's complicated by a history of, um, you know, viewing black men as being specifically sexually kind of violent in a, uh, a biological kind of way. And so that's it's reinforcing those kind of norms. But like, I think it'd be interesting to then come back and ask, well, what about claims that say, you know, individuals who are 
growing up in in poverty and situations with failing schools and you know include a couple other intersections of that sort are you know at a higher chance of ending up in prison or something like that is that sure. is that, that that seems like a intersectional analysis that seems it does, again accurate right, this and is, valuable this is the point right? i make mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay right like we've been doing regression models in the united states since the 50s right so basically mm -hmm. we've looked at multiple variables and seen the kinds of interactions and associations they have mm -hmm. so if 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 that is what we're saying intersectionality is then why haven't we been doing this forever or not forever but at least since mid-20th century yeah, I mean, right. I, I would, I would agree, saying. it seems like, right? It seems, uh, but, I, I, you know, I understand there are rules about, well, somebody coined a concept, and so they have to, well, you know, we, talk, we tag it to this period, but, like, it seems to me that what, what they did was expose a sort of key fact of the universe, and that, like, now we're continuing to slowly unpack what that means for a lot of people in a lot of complicated situations. And I totally buy the idea that we haven't applied it enough to black men, and that, like, better better analysis of the the intersections between things like being black and male and gay for example could be really important for understanding in, injustice and inequity in the world oh absolutely and i look i just delivered a paper at the aristotelian society mm -hmm. and this was what the paper was about but what i what i said is here's the difference a philosopher says let's pick out these terms in the world so let's say black gay and male okay mm -hmm. we don't study people in the real world so we assert that being black, gay, and male has certain sets of outcomes. And let's say that we think that because of homophobia, that black gay men have a harder time, say with social stigma, uh, employment, and that black heterosexual men are privileged, right? Because mm -hmm. of their heterosexuality in competitions with black gay men. Now, does that hold in some cases? Absolutely. Homophobia uh, is a powerful stigma that often disadvantages gay black men compared to their black uh, heterosexual counterpart. But there are some circumstances, as in job employment uh, and sometimes in threat construction, where black gay men aren't perceived as the same kinds of threats. So they get a small bump in the eyes of the white perceiver. Does that mean mm -hmm. that black gay mm -hmm. men are privileged? Do they become part of a hierarchy or an oppressor class? Absolutely not, because these kinds of advantages and disadvantages are varying. They, they're variables that change based on, you know, on the eyes of the perceiver and the person who has power. But notice that if the sociological evidence is true, saying that if a black straight man and a black gay man actually compete for the same job, that a black gay man has a slight edge because they see him as being less threatening and disassociate him from the uh, rape myth, then it means that the categories that philosophers are claiming have direct causal disadvantage are false. And that's what ends up happening oh, because we that? keep starting with these abstract notions of, of categories and then assuming that there's direct causal effects based on us naming groups. That's the, the, the most ridiculous way of us actually trying to grab onto something in the real world. Black male studies starts from a position where we actually study something in the real world and then we try to explain, explain the effects that we're seeing. It doesn't require any kind of causal mechanism. It makes prob probabilistic assertions, given what we know, but we're constantly discovering new things because people haven't looked into the sexual vulnerability of racialized men closely throughout history. Uh, and I think this is what you know. This is what I'm urging people to see: is that look, mm -hmm. intersectionality. I don't care what you call it, but if you have a method where your view of analysis is, let me make things up about what I think happens to groups of people, or let me take certain associations that I can see and generalize it, I think that's bad science. I definitely agree, and I think that references to data is important. 
and I, I, I mean, my impression is that that folks within some of these theories are doing some of that, but that could be a mistaken impression. As I said, I'm still very new to this terrain. The the one thing in there that I might want to push back on, maybe I misunderstood what you were saying, Please. but like, uh, I I agree that we should go out and get the data, and if the data shows that, you know, within their own community, gay black men are at a disadvantage because they're viewed as having less, um, you know, authentic masculine power and that is highly valued just just you know speaking hypothetically versus when they go out in the world they have the advantage that they are viewed as more um you know more safe right less a result of that that rape myth right it seems to me that that doesn't mean that 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 either of those things is false it's it's an example of the way that different features can carry various privileges and stigmas in different circumstances, but those stigmas and privileges are quite real, right? The person does have the advantage in the job interview and the person does suffer abuse at home or something like that. So that kind of complexity should be a part of our analysis rather than sort of undercutting it, it it seems to me. Maybe I misunderstood what you were saying there. No, no, I wasn't trying to undercut it, but what I'm saying Mm -hmm. is the generalization is the problem. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So let's work with the example that you're talking about. OK, so you're absolutely right. There's tremendous amounts. And this is across the board because black people are generally not more homophobic than any other group of Americans. But there is homophobia in the black community. Never denies it. Right. I agree with it. I know the data. Seen it. Right. Testimony. Mm-hmm. OK, so let's say that there's abuse in the black community because of homophobia. Does that mean that there aren't other simultaneous myths about black sexuality, if it's heterosexual, that could mm-hmm. pr- have similar effects. Mm-hmm. So, and I'll give you a concrete example. Concrete example. So, in the black community, black boys usually report that they experience statutory rape between the ages of nine and fourteen. They have the earliest sexual debut of any group of black people or any group of race race sex group in the United States. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, how do we explain that under intersectionality? They are well. Well, so my understanding is that um, black boys are adultalized at a disproportionate rate. They are viewed as being adults and having autonomy earlier than any other group, and so I assume that that would bring with it the false impression that they have sexual autonomy much earlier. And then maybe you combine with that myths about black male virility or something, and you end up getting higher rates of statistical, you know, higher rates of assault. Okay, fair. But that means in the black community. Mm-hmm. So that means so what you're saying then is that black people in the black community have bought into the same myths about black men that the white society has, right? Uh, po- possibly. I mean, again, you're asking me to just come up with a. I, I would rather look at data, of course, than just go to derive <laughs> right. a just so story. But if I was, you know, if I was coming up with cultural hypotheses, the idea sure. that, you know, marginalized groups have internalized things like patriarchy and racism is not, is not, not all to me implausible. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. So in that situation though, the women mm-hmm. become sexual perpetrators. Mm-hmm. Is yes. there any literature and in intersectionality that exists about female sexual perpetrators or predators in over the last 30 or 40 years? Given the way you asked the question, I would guess probably not. I mean, I haven't, no, there's not. I haven't surveyed the literature, but and, and I can certainly imagine that there is a lot of like not not great reasons for why that would happen because of people's um, desire to emphasize certain kinds of sexual assault and de-emphasize exactly. other kinds for a variety of reasons. 
So so notice, and, and, and the reason I'm walking through this with you is because mm -hmm. this I'm showing you the problem that I have, sure. right? Is that the data has been showing this dynamic for, I mean, we have, you know, ethnograph reports on this since the 1950s. But despite us saying that there are whole groups of people that are really interested in sexual assault, violence, domestic violence, et cetera, in the black community, they seem mm -hmm. to only report male perpetrators. Mm -hmm. CDC data shows that some of the most violent same-sex relationships we have in the United States are lesbians, right? Not because they're more violent because they're lesbian, of course, but because of the stigmas and the same kind of conditions every other oppressed group goes through, right? Mm -hmm. Never reported. Right. Mm -hmm. Multiracial, interracial uh, couples report higher levels of uh, domestic violence and conflict than same race couples never reported. Right. Like there's all this stuff the data says, but somehow it never makes it into you know, sexual analysis talk about it as much? in our communities. Because I, I see so, I see at least a fair bit of discussion about issues of higher rates of domestic violence amongst gay communities, for example. Oh, no. I mean, in the intersectional literature. Oh, like, in the there, intersectional yeah, there's, there's tons yeah, of clinical data on it. Yeah, there's tons of, like, epidemiologists study all the time. But what I'm saying is it doesn't become a part of our conversation race, class, and gender. So you would say that that, that actual the actual um, bulk of intersectional literature, in your opinion, emphasizes the concerns of certain intersectional groups and de-emphasizes the concerns of other certain other intersectional groups? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And that's, yeah, and that's what I'm saying is that we can, we can say ideally that intersectionality mm -hmm. addresses all these complexities, right? But then when you look at the literature, there's all these gaps, mm -hmm. all these gaps. We say, oh, let's go look at sexual violence. But somehow the only sexual violence that makes it on the table are, are the sexual victimization of, you know, uh, black girls and women. Right. Okay. Or we say that we're interested in X and it's so selective. And this is what yeah. I mean about not having a solid methodology, that it just appeals to the certain interests of the academic and the observer. We don't do that with other fields of study. Anytime mm -hmm. we have another theory that only lends to one result all the time, we say that theory is probably biased. But when there's intersectionality and we study black people, and we get the same result for 30 years, despite all the selection bias, we say, well, that's, you know, that's the politics of intersectionality. And mm -hmm. to me, this represents the lack of seriousness we have in studying black people. There is no that we the same way that we criticize selection bias or we criticize subculture violence theory or criticize white theories for ending up with the same results is the same way that we should be engaging with how we study black people there are results about black men that i don't like right mm -hmm. it is just the fact that black men disproportionately commit higher rates of intimate partner violence than their white counterpart that's just true it's been true for 30 years right i can't mm -hmm. make that fact go away but it's also true that black women do. And well, guess what? Also true that poor white people do. It's also true that Latinos do. You see what I'm saying? Like there's all kind of inconvenient facts that I have to account for in the world because they're there. And what intersectionality does is it just says, well, we don't like those facts, so let's just pretend they don't exist. And in philosophy, there's no insistence because there's no appeal to data that allows us to grab all those facts that are being, that are being excluded. And if you say okay. something about it, you're being anti-intersectional, anti-woman, anti-feminist, et cetera. Right. So the theory reifies itself constantly at the ideological level. All right. So let's put aside the intersectional conflict. I think okay. I think we've very clearly, I think, explained the concerns in a way that I think is is reasonable. And if people 
if there are folks out there who are way more familiar in the intersectional literature than I am, they can feel free to uh, present what they see as potential counterexamples. Um, sure. And in the meantime, I want to talk about men because your, okay. your whole point <laughs> seems to be we don't talk about men at all, right? So let's talk about men and boys more for the, for the rest of our time here. <laughs> you you have laid out this, this black male studies, um, or you sometimes I think refer to it as buck studies, uh, the study of, of the all of these issues having to do with young male sexuality and such like that. Can you just actually give me a sense if you had to give like a top five or top three things that you think are really harming young black men at this point that, you know, if you could, if you could throw a bunch of money at certain issues, what are the things that you would be trying to address right now? Oh, wow. Look, it's, it's a complicated question because so much of the development around the crisis of black men uh, involve multiple levels of, you know, uh, analysis, right? Like, you know, I'm, I'm, I think that the unresolved trauma that young black boys experience uh, as, you know, basically from infancy forward, you know, um, physical abuse, child sexual abuse, early witnessing of violence. Mm -hmm. I think that's the first thing that has to be addressed. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the bias and stigma that not only uh, teachers but parents have about academic expectation and, um, you know, potentiality is another. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think we have to really start having this conversation around what misandric aggression is. Um, I know feminists are skeptical about the term, uh, but there is overwhelming evidence for the last 30 years that show that racialized males uh, are discriminated against more harshly uh, than their female counterpart at various levels of, of uh, institution and, and, and social stratification, uh, be it education, employment, politically, et cetera. Uh, mm -hmm. So I think, you know, those three things are key. Uh, if I'm talking about things that I think would generally help, uh, you know, levels of stress that, that black men endure because of witnessing violence, even as adults, uh, you know, so things like weathering are the early onset of uh, gerontological disease is especially prevalent with black men. Uh, and I think lastly, we have to we have we just need more information about black men. We don't have a lot of good life course data about how they experience the world and, and what they see as uh, possible goals, given their uh, ability to be kind of pushed to the bottoms of society. Uh, mm -hmm. I think these are all really, really important ideas that we need for black men going forward that we just don't have right now. Great. So again, lots to unpack. Let me say first the, the levels of experiencing violence early on. I was curious what your uh, sort of black male studies has to say, or if you've thought much about the, how this applies to the fairly controversial issue of spanking um, and how that yes. issue is seen within uh, the black male community, especially towards black boys. Yeah, uh, you know, I got I have to shout out Dr. Stacy Patton. She's a good friend of mine. We talk all the time. Um, you know, spanking is such a controversial issue because it's prevalent amongst lower class families um, in the black community is predominantly seen as a mother right, so to speak, to discipline the child. Um, so I know it's a very sensitive topic. And I think that a lot of Stacy's experiences uh, really have kind of brought that to the fore. Uh, on the other hand, I think that it's something that we really need to examine. I'm not a, a big proponent of spanking. Uh, I don't think that it really gets the job done. Uh, but I was raised in, a, in an environment where uh, spanking was kind of norm, not just in my mm -hmm. household, but through the community generally. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's something 
that we really probably shouldn't do. And I think that black boys have a higher propensity of actually having severe uh, physical abuse and assault within various families and communities. So it's something that we need to um, really focus on and, and, and try to re-educate people out of. Mm -hmm. What do you think about the pushback that some would give that like removing things like that is part of a process that's feminizing black men in a way that is harmful to their outcomes. Well, could you explain a little more there? Well, so my, my sense was that you, I guess, I guess this is a way for me to sort of try to get towards asking, uh, you know, what are we looking to present as an alternative to the kinds of toxic masculinities that, um, that these young boys may be inheriting through observing these kinds of uh, violence in various kinds of ways. Um, but at the same time, uh, I get the sense that you're a little skeptical of some of the sort of feminist answers to these kinds of issues. Um, and so I guess I was wondering if, um, you know, how, how we sort of, what, what kind of balance we're trying to find uh, for these young boys in terms of issues like, expectations and discipline and things like that sure um well let me clarify i don't believe mm -hmm. in toxic masculinity okay. uh so you know i think i basically so rws connell uh actually came out with a great article maybe a year or two ago when this was a an issue for the american psychological association and basically said yeah i don't what we call toxic or violent male behaviors uh isn't something that's linked fundamentally to masculinity right uh, and I'll be very honest with you. Part of the reason that I decided to get my master's of public health and, and really focus on learning epidemiology is because I'm really tired of these really bad arguments coming out of liberal arts that suggest that violent behaviors somehow are linked to masculinity and not to ecological structures like trauma, alcoholism, et cetera. So, you know, if we're talking about what toxic masculinity is, then I would really like to know, well, what behaviors are we speaking about? Are we speaking about dating okay. abuse? Are we speaking about sexual coercion, et cetera? And if we are, then given that most of these rates of victimization are the same between men and women in the black community and amongst poor communities in general, what are we what are we saying about female perpetrators? What are we saying about the the higher rates of prevalence in these kinds of groups? Do poor are poor people fundamentally more toxic than middle class people? Right? You see, it's not it's not acceptable. C to certainly say that not. Anymore. No, middle class are the worst. Right. Obviously. Well, I know, I know, but but back in the day, like if you okay. read in Cohen's book in '55 about deviants, he thought that poor white boys were more would had had toxic masculinity, right? Because uh -huh. they they activated it from their poverty, trying to be like middle class white boys, right? Sure. You know, and that's what I mean. These theories are really just our inheritance of really racist and classist thinking applied to a new group of people. Um, in terms of what I think about how to deal with these issues, I'm not really interested in feminization of black men or otherwise, right? What I'm interested in are healthy behaviors that have the least exposure to violence possible. And what mm -hmm. I mean by that is if you have a black boy that's socialized in a hypersexual environment and is social, you know, declares himself mm -hmm. as a straight black man, uh, early sexual debut, uh, physical and child sexual abuse, these things may very well be in his history. If you have a black boy that claims to be gay or queer uh, and has the exact same, you know, lives in the same community, he's going to experience the exact same things, right? Mm -hmm. uh, on, and in addition to another level of, of ridicule, right? Because he identifies as queer. 
both of those produce the same kind of effects mentally. They produce the same kind of effects. They both produce pathways where they could both be victims of domestic violence in their same sex or intersex relationships. So mm -hmm. when we look at these effects, it's not so much about the outcomes that we're getting on the individual black boy. It's about the ways that environments and various forms of violence and abuse are conditioning black men, regardless of their sexual orientation or their class position, to accept some forms of violence against them as, as norms. And that's where I disagree with the feminist arguments from, because again, it's a selection bias. You want to focus on toxic masculinity and focus on something like intimate partner homicide, but you're going to ignore the rates of spousal homicide that black men go through in the very same communities, which is usually less than two to one. It's usually like 1.6, 1.8 you know, to one you know, in these communities. So I'm interested more in how we're understanding the whole package, right? Mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not me choosing one group or the other. It's me saying, well, when we see black men and boys, there's an accumulation of violence, there's an accumulation of deviance, and there's a specific intellectual and theoretical targeting about their malfeasance, right? That mm -hmm. doesn't exist for other groups, despite other groups having the similar or higher rates of victim uh, of perpetration than they do. Right. And there's my a, question is patho pathologizing there that is not inherent in other responses to other people's behavior, I think, which I agree with. Um, I'm mm. curious, you you mentioned sort of these environments, right? Yes. Uh, um, amongst the kinds of environments that they are experiencing, it seems to me that one of them is going to be cultural. And I'm curious how Absolutely. you I know we're running a little short on time, but I really wanted to fold into this a conversation <laughs> around the role of art in shaping these kinds of behaviors and experiences and perspectives. So, you know, for example, I'm not to say that other kinds of art aren't problematic, but as someone who really likes rap and hip hop, I find mm -hmm. it very difficult to find, you know, artists in that, in those worlds. And then again, not difficult, impossible, but like there's a lot of misogyny there. And I just think pretending that there isn't a lot of misogyny there would be sort of just, just unrealistic and, I'm curious if you think that that what you know if that if any any part plays a role and then on the on the opposite side there's stuff like the show Lovecraft Country that just uh, wrapped up its first season mm -hmm. which is going very much in the opposite direction in terms of showing males doing you know black men doing things that would traditionally be very taboo for black men in a variety of ways um and could I'm you say what some think, of those things are also, for example, um, the show deals with a uh, gay alcoholic father who feels uncomfortable expressing his homosexuality and his son has a negative reaction to it at one point. Um, and then I think there's a little bit more reconciliation. But um, so, so examples of uh, sexuality, but also examples of, um, y you know, things like. Uh, in inverting tropes about young black men being interested in science fiction, for example, is a, a big thing in, in the story, as well as young black women being interested, like reclaiming of, um, you know, worlds of art that were not open or, or were actively hostile to people of color for, for long periods of time yeah. and sort of interesting, thoughtful discussions about like, you know, I really love this art, even though I recognize that the artist is a horrible racist who thinks that, you know, I'm an inferior person. Yeah, well, I mean, I think black people have always dealt with that, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's not new. I mean, I remember growing up, you know, black boys were constantly into science fiction and comic books and, 
you know, we usually had like a black male group that was always dedicated to Dragon Ball Z. You know, it's always been a, a kind of escape or a way to imagine new worlds. I mean, even mm -hmm. when you think about this intellectually, scholars like Ronaldo Anderson, you know, is is constantly um, pushing pushing the bounds of Afrofuturism, or, mm -hmm. or as he calls it, uh, speculative black fiction. You know, so I mean, you've, you, you know, to me, those aren't like new conversations, right? Because that's always happened in the culture. It happened, you know, the Black Arts Movement. You know, I think that it's more, much more routine. Um, again, you know, I guess what I'm always pushing is why do we think some things are new or not abnormal? But oh, I didn't novel. mean it as new. I guess I meant do you do you feel mm -hmm. like those po what what seem to me to be positive pieces of art? Do you feel like they're like there really is like a po you know an impact of that versus something that I would personally consider to be you know like if it's heavily misogynistic kind of rap I think that's that's harmful and I think I'm I'm curious well, if that plays into to, your picture. Can I ask you a little more about that? Sure. So when you, when you say misogynistic rap is harmful, mm -hmm. um, what do you mean? So do you are you suggesting that some of the rap that comes out of the black community, I'm assuming you mean by black men, right? Um, mm -hmm. has negative so also, images of you know, black Eminem, women. of course, too. <laughs> right, right, right. So, I mean, is that mm -hmm. what you mean? That, that that it has misogynistic elements to it, you mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, do you ever listen to people like, um, I mean, Cardi B? Um, I listen, I, I mean, I actually really liked WAP, I'll be honest with you. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I, so here's the thing, like, I'm for sexuality, and it's also, like, so so for let me think for example someone like childish gambino who mm -hmm. creates a persona in my opinion that is in some situations misogynistic and i can't always tell it seems like sometimes it's being ironic and critical but other times it feels like it's slipping into just reproducing sort of misogynistic tropes because it's it's easy in some ways um and so you know, I'm not saying there aren't complexities to it. I just wonder if, you know, when I watch something like, um, uh, um, oh shit, what is it called? Uh, Boondocks, right? When they have, you know, the rap on the television that's just booty, 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 booty over and over again, right? I feel like mm -hmm. they are also recognizing that there is uh, a, a problem that should be addressed or I think an issue that needs to be worked through in some of these kinds of art. But but I guess but I, I I see that but I'm I guess I'm trying mm -hmm. to figure out so like if you're looking at like someone like SZA she has a video mm -hmm. where she's killing a black man for instance mm -hmm. if you're looking at Cardi B she says she drugged and raped black men like what, well that doesn't seem so good at all that seems very bad but no, 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 I'm not I, sure I understand what that. Yeah. Uh -huh. I understand that but what I'm saying is there seems to be between black rappers like all black mm -hmm. rappers uh, a tendency towards glorification of materialism violence. Uh, mm -hmm. and and sexual superiority and dominance right and mm -hmm. traditionally those things have certainly been dominated by black men but when you compare that to the lyrics of black women you see very similar tropes directed towards other women and black men so i guess what i'm trying to figure out is when you're looking at this are you yeah. seeing this as indicative of something in the black community or do you see it as the same thing we would say it is in the white community with punk or rock so oh, I, I wasn't even don't... trying to analyze its cause. I was simply mm -hmm. curious if it's one of the cultural, I mean, one of the factors in the environment that you see, you know, playing into 
you know, the outcomes for, for young black boys, do you feel like they are picking up or what kinds of, well, okay. um, you know, things are you picking, are, are they, they picking imitating up art? from rap? Yeah. You know, I mean, and again, right, violent video games, we can talk about how much art actually impacts sure, behavior. Sure. I was mostly just curious if you would say, I don't think that stuff has as much of an impact as X, Y, Z, or yes, I think that is also a problem that should also be addressed alongside, you know, literally watching domestic violence within their home or something. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, look, I'm torn about it because I think the way that we look at it is classist, right? Um, surely, surely, like I agree. I think some of the some of the lyrics are misogynistic, right? Mm -hmm. um, I just don't, I don't have, I guess, the same opinion about that being one of the causes of violence in the black community that I think some black feminists have. Because mm -hmm. again, my whole question is, if you start looking at the overall, you know, activities of the black community why is only one thing causal, right? And this mm -hmm. is what I meant by the selectivity. Would I like to see more positive messages? Sure. But I'm 40 years old now. So I think that a lot of the rap is crap, you know? Mm -hmm. I come to it with a certain culture understanding and cultural bias. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I think, because for the most part, like nobody in my generation even listens to most of that crap anymore. But mm -hmm. I do think that some young people are influenced by it. I think that it does generate a certain kind of loyalty amongst other groups, you know, most younger group of black people, both men and women. Um, the flip side of it is like any other kind of juvenile art. Over time, I think people grow out of it. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess what, what my concern would be in discussing things in that way isn't just whether or not it has an effect. I mean, certainly it does, right? I'm not, you know, denying, I'm not denying the obvious things. Um, what I'm saying is it doesn't have a causal factor in how people want to explain it, which is to say that the black community is overwhelmingly, you know, misogynistic, dangerous, homophobic, et cetera. Because again, that's when mm -hmm. I said, well, when you start looking at the data, you're not looking at like the white, the poor white community is not listening to black rap and they have similar rates of abuse and, and, and sexual assault, et cetera. Right. Mm -hmm. So what, what is it that we're trying to make causal relationships to? And that's what I'm mm -hmm. always pushing that we can say these things in English. We can say these things in philosophy. Liberal mm -hmm. arts has no problem entertaining the newest pathology of black people of the day. But when we start looking at it empirically or even start interviewing black people and finding out, hey, what motivates you to have the thoughts you have? It's not the answer is not always rap music. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we have to be more nuanced and more responsible in terms of how we study and, and discuss these issues in, in the black community. I, I totally agree, and I, I wasn't sort of it wasn't a loaded question. I hope it didn't come off that no, way. No, no, no. I wasn't. And, 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 please, you know, I wasn't. I wasn't attacking you or attacking. No, no. I, the question. You know, I was just I was just trying to bring to the forefront because I think that you know, I, and I'll, if I if you allow me to share this story really quickly, um, sure. I submitted a paper uh, to a mainstream analytic journal a couple of years ago, and the point of the paper was you know, making very similar arguments I'm making here. It was like, well, look, here's what, you know, theory says, here's what evidence says. So how do we kind of reconcile this, you know? And one of the comments on the papers, and I kid you not, so I showed all this data about black men's attitudes and, you know, these interviews we did with black men and how progressive they were and how their notions of masculinity didn't fit. And one reviewer made the comment, well, what about rap music, right? Well, you know, and I, and, and I, I wrote back, I was like, are you assuming that every black male listens to rap music? Like, I didn't, you know, I don't, I didn't understand the question, right? Because if the mm -hmm. question is, well, black men generate rap music and rap music misogynistic, then I, you know, I, I was like, well, there's a whole lot of other stuff. Like white women seem to be into various forms of porn that show, you know, exploitation, alienation. Do we think that they're suffering from false ideology, 
right? Like it's it's yes. interesting how we draw causal relationships to racial groups that we wouldn't dare assert when other groups that are much more favorably viewed in our society uh, also exhibit. And that's what I was trying to remind the reviewer. I was like, you you've offered me no proof or any substantial evidence that this causes something beyond the mm -hmm. fact that it's artistic production coming from a lower class of of black people, men and women, that you disagree with and think it's misogynistic, you know and you know, I think it's important for us as thinkers and theorists to understand what biases we're introducing to the field of inquiry and then how mm -hmm. we're trying to actually investigate those things. Mm -hmm. I think that's totally correct overall, though I will say in defense of the feminists, they there are many of them who will absolutely claim that women have internalized misogynistic sexual expectations and that's why they prefer certain kinds of pornography oh, that yeah, involve, yeah. Uh, you know, exploitation. Now, that's a whole separate debate about like I'm not even going to open that can of worms. Um, but you know, I, well, I but think you know your... it's a can of worms though, right? Because well, of course, it, oh, you know. sure, all of this is a can of worms because people's free choice versus mm -hmm. you know how they're being pressured is a mess. And you know, I'm not don't even don't even get me started on the free will and everything. Anyway, the point, uh, the interesting thing I think there was the difference, the sort of nuance, but di in the different responses you had versus spanking versus these kinds of music and art. Yeah, and yeah. I just think that kind of nuance is really important in these discussions. Well, look, cultures, cultures are dynamic. They're going to change. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and what, and what I guess I'm always insisting on is that we don't assume pathology. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, I could look at, like there was a study with like an N of over 3000 that showed that uh, young black girls uh, usually uh, practiced at early, as early as junior high practice unidirectional uh, dating violence against black boys, right? And you know, if I was if I was somebody that was looking at an essential gender frame, right, where I thought that identity caused everything, I could certainly infer that there's something about black femininity that causes this kind of abuse, right? It would match with the data sets when they get older, which is by the CDC, et cetera. But that overlooks like huge other confounding variables like class, exposure within households, et cetera. You mm -hmm. know, but most philosophers are not even challenged in that way about how they make relationships between associations and outcomes, right? Uh, and that's what I mean is that, look, we can have conversations about any number of things, but when we're actually trying to explain group dynamics and group-based characteristics, we very rarely have to deal with reality. We very rarely have to deal with victims. And I, and I just do, think that does such a great disservice to us when we're actually trying to get at the bottom of certain social dynamics. I think that's a great point and a good one, good one for us to wrap up on here because I realize we're way over time and I have so many oh, more fine. questions, I'm, but this has yeah. been wonderful. Uh, but I have to, of course, now torture you despite being such a nice person. Um, so I'm going to <laughs> introduce enough. you to the enlightening round. Enlightenment comes from within. So the enlightening round for folks who are not familiar joining us for the first time is going to, I'm going to give you a list of things. You're going to tell okay. me, are these things real or not real? Okay. Those what's my gauge of real and not real? Nope. You're not going to get to define what the word real means. Okay. You don't get to hedge. <laughs> There's no halfway mark. It's real or okay. not real for everything. Do you understand? All right. Are you ready? I, I'm now I'm a little <laughs> nervous. That's the whole idea. So let me get you. Let me get you primed here. Is anything real? Is anything real? Yes. Okay. So let's find out what's real. Okay. Is the external world real? Yes. Okay. Are colors real? Yes. 
Is phenomenal consciousness real? Oh my god. Um, I'm assuming like you mean phenomenal consciousness of objects, like like your inner world of experience. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Free will. No. Selves or persons. Making me have debates with myself. Uh. Yes. <laughs> Genders? No. Races? Mm. I'm torn. Uh, is it, does a hierarchy is, yeah, they're socially constructed. I'll say yes. Yes, you said yes. Okay. Species? Yeah. Species? Mm hmm. Yeah. Okay. Morality? No. Rights? No. Knowledge? Yeah. God or gods? No. Society? Yes. Money? Mm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Numbers? Numbers? No. Mm -hmm. Fictional characters? No. Holes, like a hole in the ground? <laughs> yes. Chairs? Oh my god, you're going to metaphysics class. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Sandwiches? <laughs> yes. Science? Yes. Natural laws? No. Well, wait, Be natural laws? Mm-hmm. Like eternal laws? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Beauty? No. Love? Nah. <laughs> Causality? Mm. I just don't think we could know of it. So, I mean, maybe. Uh, but you said there's no middle way, right? No middle way, yes or no. Real or not real. No, no. Okay. And finally, time. Mm. Yeah, we could construct. Yeah. Okay, you survived. How do you feel? <laughs> I'd be mean, good. Good. I mean, they're, they're random. I <laughs> <laughs> just made it after the answers. You made some of the best torture noises, though. I really appreciate that as a torturer. It really makes my well, job it's, that it's... much more fun. Yeah, yeah, because I mean, I think it's I think it's difficult because, you know, <laughs> like with the work I do, like everything's like this. It's like a like genders evolved as subsets of races, you know, mm -hmm. with their know. with their nominal. Like it's you know it's I just know. different. I, I usually work with like a social constructionist or so, social scientific view. Yeah, so. that's why we arrange them this way for maximum yeah. pain. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate it, Professor Curry. This has been a lot of fun. Do you want to let folks know where they can find your work and your book, which we didn't even get a chance to talk about? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so you can find The Man Not on Amazon or, you know, Temple University uh, Press. You know, they're, they're constantly advertising it. Um, I'm on Twitter at DRTJC. Uh, or if you Google me, I'm sure you'll find lots of interesting stories and profiles. All right, great. Thank you very much. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. 
but as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. As always, I'd like to thank our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. We've got quite a few new patrons recently, so I'd like to thank Rambo Billy, Matthew Brown, former internet spaceship politician, Jess Abels, Luis Fernando Rodriguez, Nestor Buen, Intellectual Darkwave, Curdy, Rinthrin, uh, and Grant Godso. And as always, thanks to our $20 tier Duke patrons, blacknonbelievers.com, 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 Chad T., Jesse Rabinowitz, and Brenda Goodman, and our newest $20 patron, Patrick. Thank you very much. And most of all, all of the void thanks to our top tier patrons, Dave Maslich, the creepy eyes that stare at me from the void, and our newest top patron, Big Easy Blasphemy. Thank you all so much. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe and leave us a five-star rating and a review on podcast apps. Follow us on Twitter at ETVPod, and if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and our bonus book club content. Most of all, and I cannot stress this enough, you are the void, and the void is you. 